welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. everybody, this week I'm joined by Henry Stoneley and he is the Associate Director at SOMEX, which is how I know him very well. But Henry has previously led primary care organisations into secondary care and he's been the secondary care lead at Lantham. He's been the commercial lead at QDoctor. That was acquired by eConsult, where he was the Revenue Operations Director and now works with me as the Associate Director at SOMEX. So Henry, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thanks, Tibbs. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, man. Not too bad. Looking forward to getting into this. We're doing a bit of a different episode this week. We're going to talk about a topic, and that topic is one that I get DMs on, I wouldn't say daily, but definitely weekly, which is how to sell into the NHS, which ironically, I don't have that much experience of, if any. I mean, I've obviously run accelerators and helped companies do that and help them build relationships with people that I knew in the NHS, but... I think selling to it is a different beast, isn't it? And I thought it would be good to outsource all of these requests to you from now on so you can get those LinkedIn DMs uh, and introduce you to someone that has sold into the NHS and uh, continue, well, continues to do so, um, and at least helping our clients do that. Yeah, that's great. I mean, previously you just forwarded me the emails and now <laughs> now we'll just send them the link to this. So that's great. Well, exactly. It just cuts out another step for me. So I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Process um, improvement. Okay. <laughs> Something we might end up talking about today. Um, so yeah, Henry, listen, you've obviously do, you've obviously done a lot of this stuff, right? How do you consider selling to the NHS? I mean, do you think about it in steps or stages? Is it just absolute chaos? But there's obviously so many challenges that are relatively well talked about, um, but you probably understand those as well as the nuance. So I don't know, talk to me. How do you think about selling to the NHS? The first thing is that the NHS as a concept doesn't doesn't really exist. It's 1.7 million people. It's the fifth largest employer in the world after the US Defence Force, Chinese Army, Walmart, and I think McDonald's. It's huge. And there's no one way in. Um, so you might be selling to providers, you might be selling to commissions, you might be going in through innovation grants, through pilots. There are loads of different ways in. So you have to think about every single product, every service that you're selling in a different way. And anything that is as large as that with a reasonably centralized structure is not going to be as flexile or, or agile to go full 2014 um, as, as it would like to be, I suppose. Um, there's this rigidity built into the NHS when it comes to how goods and services are, are delivered or sold to them. So if you compare that to smaller public bodies like uh, local authorities, for example, they're a little bit more flexible. Um, when negotiating how a service is delivered. So you need to be prepared to be quite rigid and you also need to be able to sell in different ways. The big thing is that for 90% of those sales, it's not it's not B2B sales. It's not business to business. And I think that what I've seen happen a fair few times, not just in places I've worked, but in other places, is people coming in from B2B backgrounds thinking that they can approach NHS commercial relationships in the same way that you would if you were running a SaaS supplier selling to a, a larger company like a bank or a, you know, a conglomerate. That's interesting that you say not B2B sales and then obviously people come in from these more traditional B2B backgrounds, perhaps in other sectors and think that it's similar in some way or that they can at least, I must imagine some things are transferable, but clearly you're saying it's very different. How would you describe it? I mean, is B2B so is that different to enterprise? Is that different to like there'll be people even like UK or there'll be international companies? Is there anything similar? 
What would you call it? Interesting is that I loved it when enterprise became the go-to word for big in sales. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. So I always used to call it B2P, like with P being public. I actually think I was wrong there because I think that there are other public sector organizations that I've since been involved in kind of working with where it's a lot easier to sell to. I, I actually think B2N, like B2NHS is a completely unique sales space um, in that Let's take uh, let's take primary care. In primary care, you might be selling directly to the providers, like the PCN leads, or sometimes the practice manager will have quite a lot of sway over the practice. You might be selling to the lead GP, whoever it is. That's very like B2B sales, but it's also quite like B2C sales because you're selling to a person. And to a certain extent, you're selling that trust and that belief that your product will work. That doesn't work on a procurement team. That doesn't work on the CCIO of a trust. It doesn't work at an ICS level where they've got to take into the account, into account 60, 70, 80 GP practices across their patch, four hospitals, an ambulance trust. You can't approach those things in the same way. So I think that you have to dissect which bit of the market you are targeting, whether that is going straight to GP practices, whether that is going to specialist trusts like ambulatory trusts or mental health trusts or community trusts, or whether you're going to ICSs. You have to split all of those out and have different approaches for each one. A one-size-fits-all thing, which is what you often see from people coming from B2B into the NHS is never going to work because what works on practice manager A won't work on practice manager B, which is fairly common in all types of sales. But what works on practice manager A definitely isn't working on procurement director B. Those are totally different approaches. And where you see this blanket approach, often with really good intent, often with really good research and data that sits behind it based on B2B sales, you see repeated failure. So... Let's dive into that a bit more. Now, you've mentioned a lot of different organizations there. You've mentioned ICSs, trusts, primary care organizations, GP practices. You've mentioned lots of different people, procurement directors and practice managers. There are people from many countries that listen to this podcast, and they will perhaps have assumed that the NHS is one big blue door that you can knock on and try and sell something. But it is, as you've said, Fragmented. I've heard it described as a shoal of fish, not a whale. It's impossible to do blah. Like I've heard it described in many metaphors similar. How do you go about that first step of just knowing where to go? What is the best way to figure that out? If I knew a concise answer to this question, I would be sat on a beach in the Bahamas <laughs> with a cocktail on a consultant salary. Um, how do you work out who the person to speak to is in the NHS? So here's the let's go let's look at the problem first of all. The first problem is it's very difficult often to work out who is purchasing your product as an organization. So you might be selling something that you're like, yeah, I can sell this to individual GP practices, but they're actually sending that off to their primary care networks, their PCN. They're like, well, that's not that's been semi-centralized, I would say. And the PCNs themselves were formed under clinical commissioning groups, under CCGs, although those are now sort of being turned into ICSs, into integrated care systems, which were formerly STPs. Uh, I can't even remember what the S- So there's there's this there's this mess, right, where you're you're chasing your intel and you're constantly looking for where to actually where the in is, where the person who commissions this service is. Let's say you find that organization, and we'll come on to how you might do that in a moment. Once you've found the organization, still looking at the problem here, then you have to find the person. So let's say you're selling into NHS Trust. You've got a really good relationship with Trust A and you're speaking to their CCIO, their Chief Clinical Information Officer. 
and you think, well, this is going great. We've got a pilot in there. It looks like going to sign a commercial deal. It's under the procurement threshold, so we don't have to go through procurement. Happy days. And you think, well, let's reach out to neighboring trusts and say, hey, we're working with this trust. Um, and uh, we'd like to do the same with you. And so you think, well, it's the, it's the CCIO at this trust, so it must be the CCIO at the next trust who has the same responsibility. Seven times out of ten, it's not. It's a different person who has that same responsibility. They might know the right person if you have the right ins, then you might be able to find them relatively easily. But a lot of the time, the responsibilities at trust A for a certain role type are not the same at trust B. Sometimes they don't even have the same job titles. CCIOs can be CIOs, they can be CDIOs. I've seen them as CTIOs, even though that's technically not the same thing. So that's your big problem. You don't know which organization is buying. And even if you find the organization that's buying, you then don't know who that person is. The only two ways to approach this are a data-led approach, where you just try and gather as much data on procurements that people have been involved in in the past, things that they've signed off on, and there are lots of ways of Googling this stuff and finding things out. Or use a tool like Contracts Advance, something like that, which is <laughs> quite a useful tool. The other approach is a people-led approach. You have to find the right people who know the right people who can talk to them. Sometimes you're going to have to pay for those ins. I appreciate that if we're pitching this towards like an early stage startup or someone who has an idea, then the payment option isn't there. Ask people. Ask people who know the right people and you will find out. The reason that people approach you to ask you questions about selling into the NHS or approach me and say, oh, I know you sold into this in the past. Do you know X, Y, Z? Or do you know this person? Is because that's to a certain extent free. And I'm only, I'd only be giving you that information to help you if I thought it helped the trust or the organization. So you either have to go through reams and reams with data, which I think is a good thing in any way, in terms of targeting your marketing and targeting your sales approach, or you just have to ask around. There is no shortcut to finding out who the right person to talk to is in every NHS organization above the individual GB practice where it's fairly obvious who that person is. That's really interesting. It makes me think about those early stage startups and the advice that early stage startups always get, which is to start with the problem. Don't start with a solution, start with the problem. It strikes me that even with this, you almost, well, you potentially need to even be starting with, well, if, if the problem that I'm thinking about going after needs sales in the NHS, you almost need to identify where the money's coming from even before you embark on this journey. Because there are so many things that you need to do before everything. You need to speak to anyone in any department. They're going to say, you know, marketing needs to be thought about first, or this needs to be thought about first, or that needs to be thought about first. But getting someone to pay for something is one of, if not the most important part of actually get, running a business, certainly getting revenue and anything that might be considered profit. So it seems that I mean, we can talk about whether VC-backed companies versus NHS is a viable uh, model. We could perhaps talk about that a bit later. But I think to make any business work with a business model predicated on selling to NHS organizations, it strikes me that this needs to thought, be thought about really early. 100%. And I think that, yeah, that route to market and your messaging are probably the two things that you need to dial in before you before you even approach the NHS. And I, that said, you might create a route to market, a kind of go-to-market strategy that you think, right, we've worked out who all these people are, and then you start trying it. 
and actually you were completely wrong or it doesn't work or you've not hit the nail on the head and you end up back at square one. So I would start building a strategy, a go-to-market strategy that has a hypothesis and then test it before you build out an entire data set of all 230-odd hospitals or 7,000 GP practices or whatever it is. Like, Do test along the way to make sure you've got the right idea. But you do need to have some level of data that sits behind it. It's it's both, isn't it? It's a good plan and it, it's, like, it's like building their company in any facet, right? You've, you you can sit behind a desk and plan it. That's never going to actually do anything. But clearly, um, getting out there, speaking to people and figuring these things out is going to be an important thing. But it does just beg the question, though, doesn't it, about if that's the case, what actually is the sales cycle? So in your experience, what is a sales cycle for let's say you can split them into primary care, secondary care, you could split them into all of those ICS if you want, but broadly, an NHS sales cycle, sales cycle, what are we talking about lengthwise? You know, when we talk about, uh, when we talk about VCs coming into, into health tech companies and you get the VCs who know health tech companies really mm-hmm. well and they understand the space and you get this, and that's the smart money, right? And then people talk about like dumb money for want of a better term, which is people who don't really know the space. I feel like that's one of those dumb money questions. So what's your sales cycle in the NHS? <laughs> like it's, it's, I'm not saying your question is dumb to be clear. Well, but, I use the word um, actually in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, look, it's, um, I have seen people, I have not done this, I've seen people sell stuff to primary care organizations, PCNs down, really, primary care networks down, um, in a matter of weeks, kind of going from initial conversation to that being something that's implemented. Ordinarily, that occurs not from outbound sales, but from inbound. Someone has approached you and said, I know you're working with X on your vaccine booking system, I need it tomorrow. Mm. Great, fine. I've also seen trust procurements go on for 18 months. Um, if not longer, when you kind of factor in the stuff that you're doing beforehand, which we'll come on to later about the bits where you're trying to get onto the bid. So it can be anything for a number of weeks or something relatively simple and easy to launch to years, certainly 18 months plus for complex sales solutions. Now, there are ways that we'll talk about later on that you can bring that down, but it's so variable. Um, and I think if I was founding a health tech startup, one of the things that would worry me that would scare me the most, I suppose, is someone asking me that question because until you've done it and you've signed off on one, you don't have any real knowledge. You can look at if it's a tender that you're going for and it's a standard tender that's been done before, you can look at that. But otherwise, it's really difficult to say. Uh, And it's only when you've signed a few five, six, seven deals that you can say, actually, it's seven months. For our product, it takes seven months from initial contact to it being in use. So how long is a piece of string? Mm. Um, unfortunately. But you've mentioned something I think crucial here, which is inbound. You've said you can chop the sales cycle if it's inbound, and that's a different kettle of fish. So the goal here now has to be me as health tech entrepreneur listening with an early stage company that wants to sell to an NHS organization. How do I set up myself for inbound Okay, two things here. One, champions. So having people within your existing NHS partners, ideally one clinical, one not clinical, so somewhere in an administrative role or a commissioning role, who are willing to bang the drum for you. And that might be at conferences, it might be on social media, it might be when they're doing their own sort of personal development that they're talking to other people about it. Those people are more valuable than any 
pay-per-click or any <laughs> Facebook advertising or joining of, you know, practice managers groups on Facebook or smoozing people at events that you could do. All the budget you could spend on that is irrelevant if you can just get a couple of clinicians to back you to the hilt and say, I've taken this on. It was a risk. It's done X, Y, Z for me. That's that's the biggest one that you could possibly hope for to shorten that sales cycle. The other one, rather than having one or two champions, the other one is to do something smart, like something that appeals, that has an emotional appeal almost to people that appeals to their own knowledge of their problems to make sure that you're showing that you understand. It's a classic sales thing, right? You make sure that you understand the problem before you start selling it because then you can tailor your solution to that. Accurex nailed this uh, early pandemic and even pre-pandemic to be fair. But one of the things that Accurex did was to say, we build or we test, I can't remember, our technology on the same systems you use. There's that classic image of the hospital administrator or the GP practice receptionist using this big boxy computer from 1993 and the hardware's outdated and the software's horrendous. And Accurix basically said, "We're not. there's no point in us testing this stuff on the latest hardware, the latest software, because you don't have that. You don't have access to that. Now, I don't know whether or not they actually did that because... I would suggest in terms of retention of developers, making them work on Windows 95 is probably not great, <laughs> but it worked wonders. And people were like, they understand the problem. And that then just, it sits there, it hangs. It is not a, it's not an outbound uh, like sales drive. It's just a piece of marketing that allows people to think, oh, they get it. And it turns out the software that sits behind it was also excellent. So then people were just doing it via word of mouth. You're not even building your own direct champions and asking them to go out and talk for you. People are doing that organically. Now, that second one, <laughs> there's not many examples of people being able to pull that off. And obviously, COVID was a very different time for all of this. But I would say the biggest thing there is always going to be building champions. Whether you're uh, in tune enough with the market, like Accurix were, to create that organic drive, or whether you're going to your existing NHS contracts, uh, contacts and saying, I really need you guys to talk about X, Y, Z, because we feel that clinicians will listen to clinicians more than they will listen to salespeople. Those are always going to be key. Yeah, I love it. And I can remember having Jacob on this podcast from Accurix a long, long time ago and famously hadn't spent a penny on marketing and yet had these incredible campaigns and incredible word of mouth. Um, and actually, it's one thing you mentioned actually early on and even in this episode of you mentioned messaging. And I think, you know, we're obviously in that game. And it's something that I've been really in tune with for a long, long time. Even when I, even when I was helping... Even when I was a, when I was a doctor, just helping like tech companies like speak to someone in the NHS, you know, I'd say to these tech companies like, make sure you use bed days. That's your currency. Use bed days. Speak in bed days. There's someone from finance there who understands what a bed day is, knows how much it costs, and knows knows that they want them. Like she wants bed days. <laughs> like tell her about bed days. And it's these these little things about messaging and language, and and as to your previous point about understanding, this has to be. It clearly is a huge part of sales, but I've I've just seen that so acutely, and I'm I, I just I've sat in these meetings, even with the likes of Doctor Doctor and Perfect Ward when they went to Epsom and Hellier, I was in a meeting with them, and they just used this wonderfully, like the way that they just talk and use the language that people understand. Uh, uh, these people opposite them just think, my goodness, do they have this job? Like they just get me so much and. You see, you see how effective it is just using the right language. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Tom and the team at Doctor Doctor 
obviously there are lots of clinicians involved in Doctor Doctor, but Tom does not come from a clinical background and deserves huge kudos for the, how effective their messaging is. Mm. I think there are there are two things at play here. Startups are changing all the time. They're pivoting a little bit here and there. I actually heard one described the other week as having pivoted so much it had bored a hole to the center of the earth, which I rather <laughs> liked. But when when you pivot, your messaging has to change with it. And what happens often is that you get very generic messaging. So put yourself in the shoes of someone who commissions for a trust, who has power over what might be commissioned. Let's say CCIO, Chief Clinical Information Officer, or even the CFO. Imagine how many pitches end up in their inbox every day. Imagine how much outbound sales, how much stuff that is irrelevant to them, how many people approach them on LinkedIn, on other social platforms, face-to-face even at events with bland, generic pitches. You know, the classic, like, oh, we're a solutions-focused, patient-centric, holistic, whatever, providing integrated, NHS-orientated, data-driven, blah, like, just just gibberish. Imagine you're one of those people who gets 100 of those a week, 200 a week, 300 a week, however many it is from different companies. If your messaging is generic, if your messaging doesn't say in two sentences exactly what it is, to your point about bed days, exactly what it is, exactly how it's going to help them and concisely without any jargon what's there's no point in you approaching them if if they have to click through your website to find out what it is that you do after you've done a cold outbound that they've miraculously opened if they have to ask do you know about have you heard about this company do you know about do you know what they do i can't their website anything like that anything where you are putting your own barriers in place because of your own inability to say this is exactly the problem we solve you're shooting yourself in the foot and in fact you're shooting yourself in both feet if you make it harder for them because there's no point in putting messaging out there that is convoluted it is a waste of your time it's a waste of your money and crucially it's a waste of their time and money so if you then go back and go back to the drawing board and go actually what we do is xyz and that solves problem abc and then you go back to them you've already got yourself in their bad books they'll be like that's that company who pitched to me and they couldn't really articulate what it was that they were trying to solve you have to have a concise pitch i know it's taken me three minutes to say that which is ironic but you have to have a really really concise tight dialed in this is why you should listen to me and then you can ask them questions then you've earned the right to ask them the questions that allow you to then tailor exactly what you do to their problem but Mm. if you can't do that stay at home Mm. (laughs) not actually and does that carry through then as you know conceptually to you finally get in the room you you get in the room you've presented your deck you've used all the right words and language you've done a lot of hard work there to get to this point and you've got so what, what so you're in the room with them okay what now what what's going to what's good, what's good and bad when you're in the room wow Depends on the room, right? So this is all very, it, it depends. Um, if, you're, if you're working with a, if this has gone to tender and you're working with a procurement team, then it's about accuracy. It's about, it's always about honesty, but it's about accuracy. It's not necessarily at that point about tailoring your answers too much to the room because actually you've already been asked the questions. They've got clarifications they want to ask. If you're in one of those scenarios, know the bid that you have put in inside out. Mm. Know the organization you are bidding to inside out. I got stung with a a mental health trust up north with this, uh, where the final question they asked after like a two-hour, 90-minute, two-hour grilling that had gone very well was which one of the trust's values 
do you think your company most reflects? I was like, uh, and at that point I had to say, I have no idea what your values are. Mm. And I, sh- I just should, I don't think we were going to win that bid anyway, but I felt so small in that moment. And I knew it was just a, a little piece of research I could have done, I should have done, mm. that I hadn't done. Don't know why, I just skipped it. I then, I mean, all I did on the, <laughs> on the train back from up north back to London at the time was just look at their values and beat myself off about it. Just know who you're bidding to inside out. That's that's the crucial bit of tailoring if it's a bid scenario. In terms of any other scenario, it's the same as all other sales, I suppose. Never, ever just go in and pitch. Never do your deck and then pitch. This is who we are. This is what we do. Talk about yourself for five minutes. Just ask them what their problem is. See if you can understand it. There'll be times when you've misunderstood what their problem is and actually you can't help them. Don't try and sell to those people. Just say, I feel like I might have, we might have got the wrong end of, of the stick here. Um, clarify what they've said. There are loads more times where you'll listen to the problem and be like, yes, this is exactly what we solved. This is fantastic. And then you can actually start to draw their experiences into what it is that you do and say, look, this is how we can stop you from what you said about X. This is how we can improve the efficiency of Y. Never just go pitch to people. Never just turn up and shout. There's a a phrase for it, isn't there? Oh, throw up and uh, show up and throw up. Right. Never do that. Like never just blur information at people. Listen Mm. to their problems. It's it's classic sales. It's not, Mm. it's not just NHS. You can't sell someone something they don't want, but you can listen to someone's problems and work out how your product solves that problem. I think it's great to still talk about those more generic points, though, because I've I've done one one episode previously on sales um, where we've heard some of these messages before, but not perhaps so NHS specific. And so, um, whilst we have covered some of that ground, I think it's not really talked about in health tech, is it? Sales because it's the it's a dark art. It's it's considered convincing people. It's considered sinister. It's perhaps considered wrong. It's, it's considered yeah. wrong. Yeah. It's, it, it's, yeah, there's, strange. There's something, there's something dirty. It, it's a lot about how, you know, how sacrosanct the NHS is both politically and emotively mm. and in, in society in the UK. There is something that people consider just a little bit dirty about selling to the NHS. Oh, you sell, so you, you, you're ripping mm. them off. Like there's this instant like, oh, right, okay. Because we see so much in the news about NHS budgets and how much money the NHS has and where it goes and how these things are used. And we hear all the horror stories when those contracts go wrong and private companies have done X, Y, Z and cost this much money. And then the Daily Express will always weigh in with, and that's 17 and a half nurses' salaries for a year because that's their metric for measuring stuff, right? So there's there's this dirty aspect that people think exists, but I, I've never met anyone working anywhere in health tech who I think has anything, who is selling to the NHS or is providing services to the NHS, who has anything but positive intentions for it as a service. No one creating technology to improve the NHS is doing it because they're like, oh, could make loads out of this and it will and it will mess over patients and clinicians. It'd be great. Mm. Like, that's, that's not, there's no dick dastardly out there twiddling his moustache, like waiting to, waiting for stuff to collapse. So... Yes, there is definitely an element that people think, oh, selling to the NHS, right. I mean, why don't you just go and murder kittens? Um, But then maybe I'm less bothered about that because I was accidentally an estate agent for a little bit. (laughs) I won't ask you about that, although if you want to... please um, don't. I've done 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 all the therapy. Fine. Um, You mentioned finding tenders and bids. Uh, Well, in fact, you didn't mention finding them. You you mentioned them, that they exist. There are these things out there where some NHS organisation has said exactly what they want, or perhaps not exactly, but they've said vaguely or exactly what they want. Um, 
and they've assigned a budget to it and you can take that budget and write a bid to try and bid for it. Tell me about these. Where do these things live? Where should people be looking? Is it possible to think of an idea for a company looking at all these bids at scale? Is it, yeah, I, I don't know, you, you tell me. If something is going out to tender, there's two reasons for that. One is that it's a highly competitive market, but a low value tender, and they just want to basically have the most open process possible. So where you've got something that has multiple different suppliers all creating the same thing, but it's low value. So under 125-ish thousand pounds, I think is the tender threshold now. It's changed since I was selling. When it's like that, they will just go to tender and they will put the tenders out there and approach suppliers or the suppliers will find it. The other one is that it goes over that procurement threshold, which do look it up. Don't take my word for it. I think as of about January this year, it's somewhere like 125 to 140k. Once it goes over that, they legally have to go to tender. So what are tenders? Tenders are, I'm sorry if I'm teaching grandma to suck eggs, tenders are a way of an NHS organisation listing a set of criteria and sending it or putting it in a portal somewhere and advising people that this exists and asking people if they think they meet those criteria, whether they are must-have criteria or nice-to-have criteria to put forward their best explanation of how they do it, their best pricing, and then it becomes a competition that's usually weighted something like 60% functionality, 40% finance. Um, the two bits, though, now that we've sort of discussed what tenders are that I think are important here, are don't bid on stuff you absolutely cannot win. Sort of to bid or not to bid, that is the question. Um, there's this temptation, particularly where you might be struggling commercially or where the C-suite of a company is you know, really pushing on the sales team to create more revenue to it only really happens when you've got a c-suite completely removed from the, the sort of day-to-day running of tenders which is unusual in startups um it, there's this temptation to just go for all the bids oh this is in roughly the same area as us let's just do it <laughs> if there's a must-have in the tender that you absolutely can't do it's not on your product roadmap there's no way you can do a workaround for it don't don't lie if there is a legitimate workaround mm-hmm. try to get around it explain that it's a workaround there's always the chance with these things that the tender's been written for someone else and not for you, where you see things like it must integrate with so-and-so software's X module. And you know full well that the only thing that integrates with that module is so-and-so software's own thing. That was written for them. Take the L, just step back, mm. fine. You're not going to win that, right? It's And you, all that happens is you end up wasting other people's time, which means that you're less likely in the future to get sort of a positive feedback from those individuals because people have natural biases. Um, so that's that's one big thing. You can't just bid on everything and think you'll win. People think it's a really easy process bidding for NHS tenders for some reason. It's, it's really not. Um, the other side of it is twofold. One is you, you need to be tracking all of your bids. So use something like Contracts Advance. Get there's, There are lots of other contract tracking softwares out there. I've used all of them. I've trialed all of them. I don't want to big up any one program on this thing, but Contracts Advance is so far ahead of the others that it would be remiss not to, right? Use something that tracks all of those tenders, all of those bids that are coming out, and then have a an A, B, yes, no. Are we bidding for this? These are the questions we need to answer. If they're all yes, that we bid. If one of them's no, we have a discussion. If two of them are no, we're out. So you have that in place. And then you have a really robust system for writing them. That I have seen usually when co-bidding with other companies, uh, companies who just, they, they'll just find all their old bids and then they'll like find a paragraph from one and dump it in and find a paragraph from another one and yeah. dump it in. No, don't. Every bid is, you know, I've, 
I've seen, I've been shown by an NHS organization, a bid where to the, they'd done that to the extent the fonts were different in each box. Don't do that. Like every bid is different. Even if the question looks pretty much the same, make sure you are tailoring it to that organization to the exact question. Yes, it's a good idea to have a list somewhere, not saved in different places. One big tender document that has every response you've ever given, all the pricing you've ever given to get an idea, but don't just generically fill out tenders. No one has won a tender. It's very unlikely you will win a tender doing it generically. Mm. So that's that's that bit. Whether you bid or not, that's important. How you fill it out is incredibly important. But the most important thing with tenders happens way before tenders. There is a sales side to a bid. There is a commercial side to bids that don't even exist yet. Embryonic bids where you are going into that organization, you look it up, you work out early when those contracts are ending. There are loads of ways you can do that, whether by Googling, asking clinicians or FOIs if you want to go down that route. You work out when those contracts are ending and you start looking at those people 12 months out and you say, right, we need to get into that organization. We need to find out what they're currently using. We need to show why we're better. And then you're going to run it as a pilot. And there's always that joke about there are more pilots in the NHS and the RAF, which is a favorite of bad conference speeches, uh, the NHS <laughs> over. But it's true to a certain extent. And you need to have those that kind of relationship in there so that when the bid for six months out, when they are thinking, okay, we're not going to extend this contract. We're going to go out to market and um, put a whole new tender in place. You want them to be writing that with you in mind. I mentioned earlier that, you know, you might see something in a bid that says has to integrate with the thing that you know only integrates with its parent company. You want to be that company, ultimately. You want to have created something that is so good that they have on one of their must requirements, a piece of your functionality that is a complete USP. If you want to win tenders, it's a long process. And the best way to do it is to be very picky about what you bid on, tailor everything that you are writing in that bid to the organization and to the question, crucially. But the best way is to be in there before the tender's written with something that's so groundbreaking, so life-changing for patients or clinicians or administrative staff or anyone within that organization that there's no way they could write the bid without having that as a must-have. I think this is a really nice note to start to wrap up on, which is that what you've talked about there is essentially building relationships and making this about people. Because yes, in part, there's a data extraction exercise there to figure out when contracts are ending, but then you're doing all the good things that you've talked about previously about going in and listening to people and figuring out what they might need and doing that relationship building with people so that that ends up getting written for you in the best case scenario. So yeah, it, it, it strikes me that we're back on to people and relationships and that being a really important part here. Yeah, absolutely. So whilst there is this maybe public perception that selling to the NHS is a little bit dirty, a little bit sordid in some way, it is still sales and sales is about people. And ultimately what you're trying to do when you're selling to the NHS is make people's lives better. So you not just the person who holds the purse strings, not just the person who is able to sign off on the deal. You want to be able to talk to them and the people who who work underneath them and the, the clinicians who work underneath those managers and the patients those clinicians are treating to ensure that you're making as many people's lives better, as many people's lives easier, improving as many outcomes as you possibly can. If you can do that, that is an exercise in essentially in people management, but also in being excellent at your job and doing a really good service for the NHS. People are so important to sales cycles, and I think that it's often neglected, particularly in a tender process. 
because it's just there's a sheet of paper sort of between you. There are 16 documents to fill out between you and you're just, you're just it becomes very transactional. You have to remember that there is a human element to this and that you are selling not just to humans, but for the benefit of humans. Yeah, so there'll, there'll, there'll also be a lot of people listening that are not at the stage with fully developed technology that are comfortable going into these tenders and bids and, you know, talking about traction they've already got and places that it already works. What's out there to help the earlier stage entrepreneurs here, the, the people who are looking for support or even to build something up to this point? What exists to help them? Oh man, yeah, I know that feeling. So the most depressing sentence you can hear while selling to the NHS or building partnerships in the NHS is, oh, that's great. Where have you where have you proved it works before? And you're like, oh no. <laughs> Everyone had to start somewhere there, right? And so what's that's really disheartening to hear, it's precisely why there are so many funding pots around for innovation. They've been squeezed a bit in recent months and years because of various, obviously, issues within the NHS from COVID to the current state of the economy. But there's loads still and people need to use them. So from the obvious ones like the NHS Innovation Accelerator and various other accelerators that are out there, get in contact with your local AHSN, the Academic Health Science Network. They're literally there to help you get into the NHS to provide better patient outcomes. That's their whole raison d'etre, right? Raison d'etre, French in the podcast, lovely. Um, look up local community boost grants if you've got more of a kind of a care and community kind of based project and get in touch with your combined authority, like your local combined authority. I, I'm Bristol-based. I spoke to the West of England combined authority on behalf of a client the other day and was genuinely blown away by the amount of potential grants and funding pots and like accelerators and roads to market and entryways into different markets that they are able to facilitate. There is a huge amount. There's a wealth of help out there in order to do this. Speak to them, use them. That's what they're there for. Um, and that's the way that when that NHS organization says to you six months down the line, this is great, where have you proved it works? You can say, well, actually, we're already used in your neighboring hospital. We're working in this primary care network. We've been working in care homes across all of Salisbury or whatever it is. Those people are there for a reason. Those organizations, those funds, those bodies, those grants exist for a reason. It's it's vital, really, that people use them. Awesome, man. Difficult, but not impossible, I think, is my take home from this. There's so much to it, um, from people to lots of uh, hard data extraction and laborious process, perhaps, but a mixture of IQ, EQ, hard work, and, you know, dare I say a bit of luck, it's always thrown in there, but especially when you're talking about tenders and things, but clearly difficult, but not impossible. And I think there's there's so much practically that you just talked about that it's just really good practical info that I think it, it's not enough, I think, for us on this podcast to just say that it's hard. And yeah, the NHS, tough business model, like, oh, it's yeah, difficult to sell the NHS. I think what we've given people today or what you've certainly given people today is at least um, some more information there and actually ways to do it. For those people that are looking for help or... Just want to email you, not me. Uh, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you, Henry? <laughs> yeah, pop me an email, henry at somex.co.uk or on LinkedIn. I am hugely passionate, not just professionally, but like privately about NHS improvement and about ensuring that the best technology gets into the hands of patients and clinicians and admin staff. Um, and I'm always happy to give people 10, 15, 20 minutes if they've got a question because if it facilitates a way for you to get really great tech into the hands of patients and help patient outcomes, then that is a 
considerably better use of 10 minutes of my time than writing bad puns for health tech pigeon <laughs> <laughs> love it henry appreciate it thanks buddy always a pleasure hey everyone thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.